Oh no, I got a notification saying this meeting is being recorded. Does a three hit? to this who aren't related to you who you are real fast all right um hi my name is liam wade um and i have been dming on and off for i want to say the last 10 or 12 years nice you beat me to my first question i was going to ask if you how long you've been playing and uh if you do more of like the player role or more of the dm maybe a bit of both and uh what got you into D? Uh, right off the bat, I have been playing for a long time. Um, I think earliest remembering was probably around eight. Um, as a player uh, with my cousins, um, they were, I had a number of older cousins that had been playing since like second edition. Um, so I was first introduced to Dungeons and Dragons in uh and then played a long time through 3.5 and then in probably 2015 with a lot of other people me and my group made the switch to um, fifth edition yeah and i think primarily certainly with with the dynamic in my group i end up dming more Um, i do enjoy it quite a bit i i also enjoy being a player um and I think that's a nice opportunity when that comes up. Yeah, absolutely. I think being a player is going to make you a better DM. I would advise people to play absolutely before you ever tried to DM. But um, being a DM is going to make you a better player, too. Just learning all about every nook and cranny of everything is going to help with the rest of it all. Well, and in in my opinion, the players that run the game are going to be other DMs. They're going to come with an appropriate amount of backstory. They're going to come prepared to role play. They're going to come prepared knowing their characters. And um, I think DMing even just like three sessions would would help a lot of new, or not necessarily new players. Yeah, well said. And I absolutely agree. Um... It's a lot of work to DM, which is evident, and people like me complain about it enough so that everyone knows. But like, you don't really understand until you've sat in the chair and like someone asks you to come up with the third NPC in the last 30 seconds and you just have to wing it. And I think having to do that does help you understand to write the backstory and like what aspects are useful for you to bring and pay attention to, which is awesome. If you got to pick for your next campaign, would you rather play or DM? Or does it not matter? I almost entirely play online these days as I've, I've moved away from high school and college and the people that I would play in person with. Um, and the way I have found to get around that somewhat is to have um, a splash screen. Um, so I try, 
if they're in a city, um, uh, party was in um, this city called Casa de Rana, um, which is the uh, the city of the Bullywug Imperium, so to speak. Um, and so I had gotten a picture of the actual palace in Madrid. Um, and I used that as a splash screen for whenever we were. Yeah. Although I, I certainly agree with you, playing in person is so much better. Um, and uh, I think having that physical maps just recently, um, we actually took a three day weekend and we all went to the same place and all played in person, oh, uh, which was dream. awesome. Um, and a bunch of old minifigures from the days that when we played in person and I made cardboard cutout maps and little 3D um, part of the, the dungeon crawl that they were going through had this big um, mushroom forest. So I made these little freestanding cardboard mushrooms, um, which I think were probably the highlight of the whole uh, highlight of the whole weekend because um, <laughs> uh, a lot of the creatures they were going up against were things like spiders that have a lot of verticality. Um, and one of them was playing um, a monk who had um, whose race had an innate climb speed. Um, so there was this whole verticality that you can't really get with a regular map and certainly not online that you could see them moving kind of up the mushrooms and standing on top and firing down and whatever, um, which I think was very cool and certainly my favorite part of running that dungeon. Oh, that's sweet. That's so much fun. Vertical aspects of maps are like, first of all, really hard to incorporate online, if not like I don't know how the heck you're going to do that without having just multiple screens next to each other and that's still confusing but i've never done that for an in-person map it sounds like it would be awesome spider climb and all sorts of stuff like that use verticality and being able to represent it would be nice for the visuals well and it, it was i think it was particularly fun because i um i had made a ruler that because dnd is played on inch by inch squares was just a ruler but was was marked off as five feet, 10 feet, 15 feet, 20 nice. feet. And you'd be like, ah, well, my spell has a range of 45 feet. And this guy's like down here or up there on the mushroom. So I've got to like get the ruler out and see if it is actually 45 feet from where I am or whether the little 20 foot height difference has, has ruined it for me. <laughs> That's fun though. It's it's good to measure those things too, because I always feel bad saying like, oh, I think that's out of range or I think it's in range. And you just have the the almighty ruler that tells for you or your uh, your 30 foot piece of string that you've cut according to. Right. According to right. That's cool though. When you go about designing like encounters, like with these mushrooms, did you pick creatures that had climbing aspects specifically for that? Or like, tell me about how you design encounters. Um, yeah, so I actually, um, the group that I play with is fairly combat heavy. Um, so a lot of the work that I do in preparation is is either making or finding a map that is accurate to the setting, um, and then picking creatures and particularly picking environmental elements that I think will be interesting. Um, so 
in a lot of cases, in if you're doing like a dungeon, environmental ele elements are like walls and doors and pits and um, things that kind of obstruct movement. Um, but then in more open maps, um, you know, you can go with kind of a similar thing. You have trees and chasms that make them hard to get across, but things like wind effects or like a river that you have to make a strength check to not get pulled down, um, I think really add to the mechanics of the encounter, which rather than just being like, ah, well, my fighter can hit 17 times, so he's going to walk up and hit this guy 17 times. Um, you know, you, you, there's actually more of a plan and a, and a dynamic to the encounter. Um, I also, uh, my group is somewhat inconsistent, so it's typically between three and five people, but basically until the night of, I'm not sure how many people are going to be there. Dang, that's hard. Uh, <laughs> which is a little frustrating, but um, I typically have a um a range of kind of what i expect the encounter to be so um for the the uh mushroom forest a couple of really important elements would be um were like creatures that i know i wanted to incorporate to really drive home the setting that they're exploring so giant spiders are a common one um so i use them uh, displacer beasts. I have a soft spot in my heart. I love displacer beasts. Um, they're so cool. They have ranged attacks. They have really high mobility. Um, they are a very, and I don't know how to quite put this the right way, but they're a very smart, dumb monster. You could, you could just have a displacer beast run in and go attack, attack, attack. And that would be fine, but displacer beasts are intelligent monstrosities and will know I'm going to stand on this ledge. I'm going to wait for him to come by. I have a 10 foot reach and he has a sword. So I'm going to hit him once and I'm going to vanish into the darkness and I'm going to hit him again before they short rest. Um, so, so typically, I typically plan for three or four people, which for the most part, either makes it like a medium or a hard encounter. Um, and I'll say, you know, oh, well, it's going to be like two or three displacer beasts because I know I want to incorporate them. It's measured in displacer beasts. Well, well, so for, for an encounter with displacer beasts, right? Um, you know, I know I want displacer beasts in this jungle because the jungles or the mushroom forest because the mushroom forest is oppressive. It's dark. They're underdark creatures. They're ambush predators. That was kind of the theme of the mushroom forest is that there's a lot of like things out there waiting to get them. Nice. Um, but then if like somebody doesn't show up or uh, if, you know, for whatever reason they get four criticals right off the bat and they just like evaporate one before it can get away into the darkness, I kind of always have a backup plan of how to tone it up or tone it down a little bit yeah um yeah i don't remember if the dungeon master's guide talks about that but that's for sure a, a dm must have is how to quickly on the fly adjust a fight to be slightly tougher or slightly less tough and just getting a general consensus on like how much a 
party of three level two players can take or should be dealing out is gonna right the only way to learn that but you don't want to fight to end in two rounds and you for sure don't want to accidentally smack your entire party into death when they don't deserve it and yeah i think that has definitely been seen i was playing a campaign that my older brother was running um and one of the final battles it was kind of world war one trench warfare we were like bridge too far cutting our way through the enemy hobgoblins and i was playing a at the time i think seventh level druid of um circle of wildfire druid nice very fun and fireball in an open space versus cr one quarter one half whatever hobgoblins are was just devastating <laughs> it was like and there's seven of them gone and i think having some kind of contingency plan uh for being like oh well they had a troll in the dungeon that's gonna like break free <laughs> because like oh shit i didn't realize quite how good that ability was or whatnot yeah yeah absolutely and you, you don't want to take away all of the reward right because like you had this awesome aoe spell and it's fun to just obliterate a whole swap oh yeah no it, it totally is that there is something to be said like my my party that i dm for are are mostly engineers they're really into like the planning and the mechanics so if there's like um you know a one of the the more recent big encounters i ran was um this like black dragon um so they were fifth level um i think young black dragons are cr7 so i had kind of scaled it a little bit to be more appropriate because also young black dragons have something a breath weapon deals something like 48 points of acid damage on average oh. <laughs> so it was like oh there goes anyone who's not uh, a health tank yeah. uh, deck save or die but so they were big into planning so they had um they had tracked it to its lair they had stolen a ballista to kind of injure it so Whoa. it couldn't fly around um they had uh made uh potions of water breathing so they could swim down into its its swamp layer and face it there they had made uh, or gone out of their way to find stuff that would protect their like metal armor and and weapons from acid damage. Oh. So they had done a lot to do that. And I think it, certainly in those circumstances, it's important to give that agency and to make it feel like that was was a very important choice or decision. Yeah, absolutely. You want to reward the work. It's that fine line between like, did they do all of the stuff? Did they forget to prep one thing that the dragon has? Like, did they not know that it has these special talons that can disable magic weapons or something like that? But also, it's fun to track down the acid-resistant stuff that you layer all over your swords so that they don't melt in its breath. It was funny because I had planned, so it the dragon had lives in this sunken temple. So it's kind of... It's supposed to be like the Temple of Zeus where there's like a big statue on one and Ooh. that run down. And the cleric is a cleric of um, cleric of Thor. He's he um, whatever the oath of the thunder, thunder gods there. What? I think it's thunder. 
Yeah, whatever the cleric yeah, subclass is called. Um, so he does a bunch of sonic damage or thunder damage, and he does he casts things like shatter and shockwave a bunch. So I had planned for this big dramatic event. So he is kind of their main line. He's got heavy armor. Um, he goes up. He casts shatter. It bursts apart one of these columns, and the column collapses and damages the dragon a little bit. Um, and he never cast the entire encounter. Oh my gosh, dang it. And I was like, oh, I'm so prepared for you to use this cool ability <laughs> in a cool way. And you just totally blew me off. Yeah, what do you do though? I mean, I wonder what percentage of the stuff that you plan actually happens? Like what percentage of stuff do you plan for as a DM that just never, never is seen, is never done by the party? Um. I think that goes into how world building driven your things are versus yeah. how encounter driven. Um, so I like to write, I like world building. Uh, I think it makes for unique settings. Um, there are things like um, one of the main factions in this setting that I have created tribe of uh, lawful good lizard folk Ooh. that have these various rites of passage that are performed and why they're performed that no one has ever asked me. But <laughs> <laughs> they're there in case they come up and to kind of justify um, so the one of them is, is the first molting. So uh, <laughs> Because they're lizards, when they're when they're adolescents, when they're like fourteen years old, they undergo the first molting, and that's when they become like adults, where they lose their skin. But that's ritual that like the tribe has to perform. You can't just do it on your own. Um, and if I ever need to use lizard folk, which I have a couple of times as kind of generic bad guys, um. I have these kind of chaotic ones that didn't have a tribe to help them undergo the molting. And they're kind of like, uh, like Fremorian, like their old skin is still there and they're kind of stretched and improperly grown. And they've been like driven mad by this. So they're statistically the same lizard folk, but they're visually different and kind of plays into the lore of the world a little bit. Damn, that's sick. That's so much fun. Yeah. So I think, uh i try to not plan too far ahead certainly not too many encounters ahead yeah <laughs> um because it's just so easy to blow that off yeah uh, so there's something to be said for like the players not doing the things that you want and some of your planning going down the drain that way but like if you don't plan smart if you plan things that they're probably not going to see then like you you're just wasting your time and if you're doing it for fun that's awesome but like you don't need to balance the cost of various drinks at the bar with like however much it would cost to ship them from the town that actually brewed the shit. But you don't need to get right. crazy about it. It's whatever's fun. And I think a lot of that stuff, as as I've you know, am now an adult who has a full time job, all the time in the world that I necessarily did in like high school to plan these things. There are 
a lot of really helpful online resources, um, particularly like Don John, I use a lot um, mm. that has like randomized taverns and NPCs that if I'm like, shit, I need a tavern that these guys will go to, I'll come up with a name for it. So then you can go on Donjon and it'll give you the price of a fried chicken sandwich and why it's the best one in the county. And you're <laughs> like, great, this makes my world feel so much more lived in and I don't have to, you know, like spend 30 or 45 minutes coming up with, you know, why their fried chicken sandwich is the best in the county. <laughs> yeah, that's sweet. I'll have to check that out. I've never used that resource before, but a lot of that stuff is awesome though. And like you said, it does make it feel more intense but in this crazy world we live in where there's so many billions of people that also have access to the internet someone's probably already done it which is so wild and then there there are a couple of things that a couple of resources i've made myself um we had one campaign where we were doing variant encumbrance made a uh rough estimate of how the volume and weight that coins take up so if you like if you plundered yeah. a dragon's hoard how much would it weigh and how much you know would you need wagons to wheel it out with and i was pointed <laughs> um as uh so for that black dragon encounter that i had in my campaign i went through i did a randomized coin treasure um, you know, it was two thousand gold pieces and seven thousand silver pieces, and uh, and then I I went through and I put the numbers in my little spreadsheet thing, and it was like, oh yeah, it's one hundred and fifty pounds and like three cubic feet of coins, and I was like, god damn. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if you, you can all fit it in your back pockets, right. <laughs> out over a big floor it looks impressive but when you sweep it up into a pile it's really <laughs> <laughs> what if we melt it down so that it fits easily into this cubic shaped container right with... <laughs> dang that's lots of fun yeah encumbrance is something that i've never trifled with i saw something about how paladins if you do the generic character creation from the book are at like 95 percent of their carrying capacity just with the gear they start with and that alone is enough for me to not ever want to think about that ever. Oh yeah, because... no, I was I was running the the campaign that we were doing like actual variant encumbrance and keeping track of it. I was running a paladin and I had uh a silvered warhammer and a plus 1 longsword and a shield and a suit of full plate as a half orc paladin like a 17 strength and that was most of my carrying capacity with just my like generic gear let alone my yeah. my block and tackle and my crowbar and my immovable rod immovable rod that's fun a lot of creative things there yeah i guess there are like races and classes that get specific bonuses for encumbrance and things like that like i want those to be worthwhile and like if you're playing a half orc who has the brutal critical thing it only specifically says that you get the critical damage bonus for melee attacks but like if you want to play a half orc wizard now that's just fucking kahoot which is not not fun like I, i'd rather change things around or like if you're a goliath and you're not using encumbrance then 
the thing that gives them extra carrying capacity, I'd rather change into something else that we would use here. But that's a different homebrew question, I suppose. Oh, yeah. No, I totally side with the the idea that if it's going to be more fun um, and it's within, particularly a lot of people are like, oh, well, it's unbalanced. But as long as you're consistently applying the more advantageous or less advantageous, I guess, interpretation of rules to all of your players, it's just more interesting um, in, in kind of kind of in my opinion. Whereas like I could I definitely see, you know, one of those like RPG green text horror stories of like oh my God. of like, <laughs> oh well my my DM let this other player, you know, get a get a laser <laughs> weapon and I'm out here like fighting people with a spoon and that's not fair. And it's like well yeah, it takes away from it, but I think as long as you're consistently ruling uh on the side of you know everybody being equivocally powerful um like i had a player recently who uh wanted to play a grung um, ah the frog people the the frog people that aren't bullywugs or troglodytes or lizard folk um <laughs> uh and if you hadn't caught on that my campaign is set in a jungle and there's a lot of the two main factions are lizard folk and bullywug and anyway or i guess i should preface this with his previous character had just been killed and this was going to interim character while they were figuring out if they were going to resurrect this other guy and like how they were going to do it um and grung get the special ability that on uh i think like piercing weapon attacks they can apply a minor poison that like comes from their skin because they're kind of like poison dart frogs and deal an extra 2d4 points of poison damage with it and monks unarmed attacks are not piercing um and they get more of them but he was going to be there this particular character was going to be there for like two or three sessions and it was like yeah it's thematic and it's not super overpowered to to have you give people poison slappies so why not yeah absolutely it, and if you can't find a good answer to why not then the answer should probably be yes right yeah <laughs> yeah and the concept of like we were talking about just do whatever's the most fun and sometimes that is calculating out how much of this dragon's horde could i realistically carry even if i'm like a yoked magically enhanced barbarian person you're probably not gonna be able to lift a mountain i was so i was so ready what? for the gotcha moment on that because i was like <laughs> this is a huge dragon horde they're gonna come down here and they're gonna be like and we take the horde back to town be like no you don't it weighs a thousand pounds and then i did the numbers out on it and i was like ah shit damn <laughs> Yeah, that's one of those moments where you got like 95% of the way there. You could have had like a hundred pound silver statue or something, but like right, you have you have a giant marble statue that's embedded in the yeah. floor that they have to spend a session digging out and loading carefully onto a wagon. <laughs> I'm gonna get a bolt cutter. Right. I'm gonna get my movable rod. I love immovable rods. Those are so stupid. <laughs> immovable rods are one of the handful of like kind of 
generic, I will say, magical items that add like immovable rods, I think, are particularly notorious for being um, but yeah. you get to see really interesting things with them that are like, you know, oh, well, I'm going to use it. This is a flat surface, but I'm going to put my movable rod here so I can get like a lever in to pry this door open or, um, you know, whatever. I'm going to, we have to descend down a cliff. So we're going to hang the immovable rod over the cliff and like belay ourselves down you know, <laughs> off of it. Um, but yeah, I, I was in a car chase one time and someone stuck the immovable rod behind the car. So the, like the wagon behind it would just smash into it. Yeah. We, we cool. had a, we had a whole debate on whether or not you could put an immovable rod in like somebody's backpack and if they ever ran, use like mage hand to activate it in the backpack. Ooh, and then they're like stuck there trying to figure out what happened. That's very fun. Um, what other magical items are on this list of generic, potentially mechanical troublesome, mechanically troublesome, but like fun? What's Liam's list of magical items? Um, I think anything that have like uh, in a relatively simple effects. So, um, like the decanter of endless water, um, ah. and uh, fifth edition they had introduced the alchemy jug. Yeah, it produces like five gallons of mayonnaise a day. <laughs> I think up to the DM's discretion, whatever kind of liquid you request. So it'll produce honey or mayonnaise or clean water, or dirty water. You know, you know, pack a lock with mayonnaise and then use ray of frost until the, it expands and cracks the lock open or something you know <laughs> but you know that something yeah. like that is going to happen yeah but that should well, well that's like, exactly it. that's out of the right jug. that's <laughs> why you give certainly creative players like a jug of alchemy um any of the the kind of minor items out of xanathar's the cloak of billowing um or uh, I don't remember exactly what it's called off the top of my head, but there's a um, a helmet that just like spits like smoke out of the eye sockets when you activate it. <laughs> it's like the helm of Terrible. the helm of fuming or something. I think any of those things, uh, the rope of climbing. I mean, that one's a little bit more. Yeah. It's good for, but um... yeah, stuff like that is great. I sometimes I have a hard time getting my players to use items. Mm -hmm. I remember like the last campaign I did, there was a couple players that had like three or four magical items by the end that they just never used, which is, which is a shame. I wonder if maybe it's up to me to design better situations of like that kind of stuff. But also using the alchemy jug to ex like expand or shoot mayonnaise into a lock and then freezing it is for sure not a like a situation you prep for as the DM. <laughs> That's something the characters make up. So something I have found um, to at least help magical items feel magical for things like, you know, a plus one shield um, is give it some degree of characteristic that isn't just purely like this is the mechanical upstep from the normal shield. So my players found a 
a plus one shield in um, the bottom of in this little dungeon underneath the tree, um, which are like big important trees and they kind of interface with the weave and whatnot. But um, I gave it a name, it's called the Shield of Roots. And it is a normal, it is a mechanically normal shield until you activate it as a bonus action, in which case it becomes a plus one shield, but you become rooted to the ground. So you cannot move oh. and they can, and other people cannot move you. So every time a player has to use that item, they there's a, okay, well, you know, here it is and here it's doing its, you know, quote unquote magic that makes it, at, at least I hope, feel like a slightly more interesting item than just having plus one AC compared to what you had the session before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it sounds memorable. And at the end of the day, that's what counts. I love the idea of a trade-off too. Like rooting yourself to the ground could potentially be good in certain situations, but it might also be right. bad. It's not inherently, it's not inherently good or bad, but it is does have a mechanical effect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's a, in the game I'm currently running, hopefully the player gets this before I air the episode, <laughs> but I'm planning on giving one of them uh, this thing called the Gambler's Rapier, which I really like, where you get to choose every morning when you attune to it, either a plus one to plus three or a plus zero. But in like consequence of that, if you go unconscious, your death saves have a negative penalty based off of the number that you chose. So if you pick a plus three right here, you get a plus three, but now your death saves are at a minus three, which is a big cost. But it's also like a plus three weapon is huge. That is a that gigantic is, bonus. I um, I guess that, not that I'm doing the interview here, but how often do you, how often do your characters end up rolling death saves? Oh man, it has rarely happened. Honestly, that was one of the last talking points I wanted to get to tonight, so I'm glad you brought it up, but character death is something I'm frankly afraid of, I think. I think I do, like all DMs, a good amount of improvisation with like scaling battles up or down or just attuning numbers and those sorts of things. And I have a hard time killing people off. I also like, I play from a very story-based perspective. We probably do like 30% combat and 70% role play. And so if someone's gonna die, I don't want it to be because like, the spider in the cave that leading up to the boss crit on them or like because they fell off a ledge because they failed to check and granted like if the right situation arises where someone's just stupid enough to get into a situation i've warned them not to multiple times you earned it but i don't know maybe like once every three combats will someone go down or like have a save be rolled what about you is it like an every combat kind of thing certainly not every combat um maybe it's it's a fairly regular occurrence um and like i said our group is more um combat focused they're pretty mechanically minded so i try to make mechanically challenging encounters um i've been running my campaign for a year and change now um and we have had three player deaths whoa um all encounter when that happens i feel bad because i feel like you know i've potentially done something wrong as the dm 
which I think is a very common notion when you're trying to run these things. Um, but I usually, after the session, try to link up with the player and work with them to either A, how, they've, how they would like to reincorporate that character, and I'll get into that in a minute, or B, you know, whether they want to keep going with that character and whether or not they're, they're happy doing, you know, moving on to a new one. Um, so the first one was this guy um, who was actually in that same world tree encounter that they got the shield of roots in. Um, he had been killed. I, I spoke with him after the encounter. He had a bunch of other player I, character ideas. He was like totally fine moving on. Yeah. And I was like, great. Um, and then I had, I wrote up a little thing that the world trees don't normally, um, that they have, that the party has and can now like carry with them and, and plant somewhere, you know, important and it'll, you know, potentially play a role in the story, even though his character has moved on. Um, the second one was a, uh, a wizard that I, uh, <laughs> uh, it was this encounter in, uh, this coal mine and they were going in to clear out these like bad guys that had gone in to, um, defend the coal mine. It, they were kind of taking it over and they had a trained, um, boulette, like the, the beetle sharks, um, and it burrowed and the three mostly melee characters advanced and the wizard stood back to shoot fireballs and it he had like 18 health and the thing jumped up and hit him for like in just like one round and i felt so bad yeah because i was like i was like this is mechanically what these creatures would have done you know they would want you know they're not dumb monsters um, so I spoke with him. He was a wizard. Uh, he was big into divination and necromancy. Um, so he has been, I kind of hinted at that there was another, there was a necromancer that lived in this area. Ooh. And they, they never buried him um, or like had, you know, did any kind of in-game funeral rites for him. And now he's got a little story arc where he has to go back and confront the necromancer and either like double down on being an undead and kind of, you know, maybe gain advantage on death saves or something to like prove that he's kind of really leaned into his new being or potentially defeat the necromancer and be restored to his full Ooh. self once again. Um, but so, so he had played another character in the meantime but then eventually we reintroduced his you know and i had worked with him on this his undead character who's been an undead for the last you know however many sessions that's sweet and, yeah and i think that for me at least certainly like playing with people that i know and people that i've been friends with for a long time i don't want to ever be like your character is dead you have to roll a new one it's like, if you like this character, I will work with you to find a way to reincorporate it. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's and right. I feel like that that is when you get into being a bad DM is when you've removed agency from the player. So if they want to play this character and you just kill them and say, no, roll a new character. <laughs> you're just being a bad friend. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, uh, my little brother Beckett plays a lot of D&D as well. And he talked about doing like video game save point kinds of things. Um, for like if your party gets TPK'd and it's nights out, lights out for your party, that like that's a rough way to end a story where like you just all lose. And there might be a time and place for that in D&D, just like there's a time and place for people who want to play with encumbrance and maybe right. a campaign where like everyone's experienced. Um, I've heard stories of people where like their whole party's dead and this entire horde of monsters is dead except for one person and one monster and they lost with one hit point. And so the game ended, but it was so stinking close and it was like a two and a half year long campaign. But like, that's a fantastic way to have it go out. Like um, the Witcher's TV show and the games talk about him, like Witchers don't retire, they just get old and die. And right, they just get slow. Story arc. Yeah. And I think certainly planned player death can be a very powerful tool. And I think if, if you are a player and you are working with your DM to have like big battle, and I think it's important for my character to like sacrifice themselves for their friends and having giving them that opportunity versus what I think usually happens, or at least in my games, where it's just like, oh, whoops, like <laughs> shit. Yeah, dang, I didn't mean to do that. And I, I think that is really kind of important. Um, the campaign that my older brother was running, the World War One thing, the original arc that we were given was that we were like this shock troop and we were going to be given like a fief if we could accomplish this goal. So it's like the, the four of us went out on this journey. We like fought our way through enemy lines. We saved the day. Hooray, everybody claps. There was like more to the story. But at that point, my character had accomplished their goal. They had gotten a fief. They had done what they set out to do. They saved the day and they retired. And he in the fief that they, the players were awarded and I rolled up a new character and should that one ever die or what have you, I can go back to my old one. Uh, he was, he was given an out and he, you know, that, that was his character was to take that out and be, you know, be a, a farmer and, and a mayor and live in the woods. And, yeah. Um, I think ending campaigns is very hard. Oh, I <laughs> have had, and I've, I've tried to work on ways to um, evolve that. And I think a lot of people, certainly DMs get this like grand notion of, this is my like one to 20 campaign and it's going to start off with us killing rats and it's going to end with us killing God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's a great notion to have, but unless you're leveling up a session or two, that campaign is going to take you like six years. Yeah. That's a long, a long time to be running a game every like a year and a half four to six months. 
of like have you know something that people can keep focused with i guess i'm sure you as a dm you like hide plot points in things and you're like i'm so clever i've you know like like this <laughs> npc that i introduced in session three has like bronze hair and blue eyes so they're clearly a bronze dragon in disguise and then it's like by session 125 you're gonna remember that this npc yeah absolutely and like note takers an AP class to like get my right. <laughs> and to all those listening, there definitely isn't an NPC who's secretly a bronze dragon. That was definitely a fake example. <laughs> <laughs> the one that has anime protagonist hair is just going through a phase. Don't don't look for draconic ancestry. Yeah, I love the idea of running campaigns based on certain levels as well. Because like it's fun to start at the beginning of the level thing. But like you said, it's hard to, like the biggest challenge rating monster of all of them, more than the Tarrasque, is player scheduling conflict. Yeah. Right? Like that's why games fizzle out. That's why you don't get a satisfying ending. Well, first of all, they're really hard to do even if you get an ending, but it's hard to get the satisfying ending if like someone moves and then you can't play online or like online's harder or like whatever have you stops the players from being able to get together. But I really like the idea of doing like an earlier campaign or like a later level campaign, um, like levels 15 and above or something like that. As a player, I always feel like I'd rather play higher level games also. Like the first levels are great, especially if you're learning or like if you're trying to do a hardcore killing rats to killing God pipeline, like you're trying to get all of the story and like role play and character development in the moment and the moments elapse together and are very long and continuous but like i think it's way more fun to be that level 17 paladin who can strike everything with humongous bolts of lightning and he can do it four times in a round versus the level two paladin who just got healing uh hands what's it called baby spells right but there's a time and a place for all of that yeah and i think there's there's something to be said about leveling up i particularly like levels like three to five because the environment is still a concern like running out of food and getting tired are like still viable concerns yeah (laughs) whereas like by the time you have somebody who can cast like create food and drink yeah it's true that does take out take out that part of it i've never done like a survivalistic campaign but I think it'd be a lot of fun. There's a lot of like bookkeeping you'd have to do, but that's what you want. So the one way I have found it was an idea that I would like to explore more that I haven't certainly executed to the best of my ability. All aspects of the natural world that they can interact with. They had like, I had introduced, there was, there was a part in the story where they were in this town that was known for this like specialty fish dip. Um, and then <laughs> later in the evening, they were attacked by like imps that are fire Memphis. And those that had eaten this like spicy fish dish were had resistance to fire damage. Oh, that's so fun. That's and then, a way to do that. And then so <laughs> later on in the story, they are like at 
they're they were preparing for something and they're like camping out in the woods and they're scoping out this local pond and there's like the same fish that they made the spicy fish dish with so they could you know they then have the opportunity to be like oh well i remember this story i can like cook these and eat them and have resistance to fire damage like in this next encounter should i need it and i think pretty effective in bringing them into the setting didn't require nearly as much bookkeeping and like patient all right well you move 12 miles today and you've consumed one day of rations and water um that i think you know fans of the oregon trail really like but might not necessarily be for everybody (laughs) the cr5 monster dysentery god what's um i don't know how much 3.5 you ever played um none approximately go ahead it was in second or third monster manual that they released for 3.5 um that had living spells so they were like living lightning bolt and living cloud kill that they were actually like very scary things but i think living dysentery the cr living dysentery (laughs) is just a cloud that chases you around (laughs) oh no (laughs) that would make oregon trail way more fun i want a magic remake of oregon trail with like classes and shit um well i think a lot of that is setting dependent too that if you have if you're your classic forgotten realms like medieval renaissance europe that's just like fields and mountains and forests there's like not a huge concern um but uh things like uh, i don't know if you're familiar with like the dark sun setting i'm not uh one of my my players and the other guy who dms our group has read up and we've discussed it quite a bit so dark sun is this like really arid like desert planet and water is like super hard to come by. Um, and there are things like sorcerers and wizards, I think, um, can essentially use meta magic if they like draw from the water around them. So like if if you're out in kind of an arid place and you wanted to, you know, maximize fireball, you can do that but it's going to suck like every single plant in a two mile radius dry. And I think that things like that or, um, you know, environmental conditions. So if you have, uh, and I've never played Curse of Strahd, but have you played Curse of Strahd? It was the first like real thing I ever DM'd. I did a thing over a summer one time where it was like a, a hodgepodge of basically just one shots where like nine, way too many people, like nine showed up. And I was like, you guys are going to fight these monsters today. And we looked at a map. But then after that, I ran Curse of Strahd. It was like my first real game. It was a blast. But what were you going to say? So Curse of Strahd, where it's like rainy and foggy and dark all the time. You don't need survival elements. You just need every time you enter a battle map, everything is lightly obscured. You know, to really drive home the oppressive nature of that setting. Um, Or like lycanthropy, where any wolf in the wild could be a werewolf and getting bit by that your character might know it not know it or might know about it but like the threat of disease yeah we had in for the paladin character that i was running he got bit and infected by a were rat um at level two 
which paladins are immune to disease oh. is at level three so we had we had a race because there's like a week or something before lycanthropy sets in that we were like we had a race against the clock to level him up to level three that's so fun <laughs> before that's he so got good. before he got turned into a oh my gosh do you do experience level ups um i predominantly do like story based yeah i think it's just way easier to do that and like you get to control it that way too well and, and... it definitely it it leads into it being more of a story and less of a game yeah man that idea of grinding to get the level up so that lycanthropy doesn't set in is awesome that sounds like so much fun i would love to redo curse of stroud someday because i was still like what i was getting after is that i was a baby dm when i was first doing it like i did not know what i was doing and it tied together into a decent story by the end i think but like if i could start it again there's so many things that i would do differently Stroud's a great example of like a good villain too i think villains are one of the hardest parts about DD to do yeah like either it's a dragon that's spooky and like you need people to stab it a lot or it has to have a lot of dimensions and like has to have reasoning and a personality and has to be most importantly relatable for something like why do the characters care about this motherfucker are they, is he trying to destroy the universe we should all care about that but like right. is he trying to get the thing that you need to stop your grandma from dying of cancer right. or like but also if he's trying to destroy the universe and you start at, at level four why hasn't you know, the grand bishop of the Church of Pelor gone in, over and kicked his teeth in. Like, yeah. why Why is it that you you characters are the chosen few that, that get to kick his teeth in? Yeah. I think that's like a story aspect more so. But if you want to do the, I love the way you phrase it, but like the killing rats to killing God pipeline, um, God can't be the enemy starting at level one, right? Because if you're going to play a campaign for two years and slowly level up over this course, you're probably going to need multiple villains and you don't want to have to wait so long that the people never see him. Right. That would be unsatisfying. I think, well, that leads into uh, villains with an agenda that is not related to the players. So, yeah. so typically when I kind of set out in storybook, my longer campaigns, I try to, incorporate like oh well this guy seems kind of bad so we're gonna like as level four guys go beat him up and like take his lunch money but then while you're there you discover like the letters from his boss and then you're like oh man his boss was a vampire and then you go like beat up the vampire and then you're like oh man this guy was a cabal of vampires it was being run by a pit fiend and <laughs> then you you know whatever progressed from there until you find the pit fiend and then whatnot but having right villains appropriate for the character level yeah all that stuff makes a big difference it's such an interesting mix of combining previous things from the story like your spicy fish example is such a great just small speck of planning that went into something good later on and then like the current thing balancing encounters in the world around them right now but then also trying right. to draw that string of this vampire works for the pit fiend kind of thing. I thought the zoom was going to kick us off. It, it kept it. Uh, parting words of wisdom. Um, never underestimate call lightning. Is there a story with this or. 
So yes, it's in a 120 foot radius um, and under stormy conditions, if it was in stormy conditions, it hits a 15 foot square for 4d10 damage. Damn, what level spell is this? Call lightning? Area of effect is one five foot square, but in the spell description it says and hits all adjacent squares. So you can hit you know, in tight groups, two or three opponents for 4d10 damage. Yeah, their closest 24 friends. For for DMs, I think adding dynamics to combat encounters is really... You're trying to get emerged, right? Like, you're trying to be submerged into this world. It's a role-playing right. you play to escape. And, like, the more intricate and fanciful and enticing and interactive you can make that world in whatever way imaginable for combat or role play or anything the better and the more memorable well liam you've been a shock an endless pile of resources and knowledge uh this has made me really want to play DD with you again all right well um yeah thanks for having me on long time listener first time caller uh, <laughs> And we'll have to do this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely, man. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Dungeons & Dragons Predictions. I have been your host, Adam Olbreeze. If you would like to reach out or get into contact, you can reach us on Twitter at DND Predictions. Thanks for playing Dungeons & Dragons. Have a good night. Good night. Bye. Bye.